The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we're going to finish the, uh, the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And uh, I, I'm kind of wrapping up uh, all of the sermons. So if you haven't been with us, you're going to get here for the conclusion, the final applications of it. But the whole chapter is about faith. It is uh, in, in the context of Hebrews itself. It's about the fact that our faith is in Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ alone. The concept that uh, you have a faith and I have a faith and your faith is in your God and my faith is, is in my God is kind of a, a, a demonic myth permeated by Satan so that we could all just kind of relax and go, oh, we're all going to make it. We're all going to get there. When the scripture teaches over and over and over clearly that only through Jesus Christ, only through Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of sin. Only through Jesus Christ is heaven found. Only through Jesus Christ do you have the abiding Holy Spirit. Only through Jesus Christ are you made right with a righteous Father. And so the writer of Hebrews has been saying, Jesus is superior to every possible symbol of him in the Old Testament. And that's what the Old Testament is, whether it's the Day of Atonement, whether it's a fellowship offering, whether it's a blood sacrifice, it's all symbolic of the work that the Messiah would do when he would come. And so he has come. And the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is superior to Moses, superior to the uh, priesthood of, of Aaron, superior to the old covenant, and only through faith in him. And then he goes even a step further to say that's how all the Old Testament saints were saved. And he starts at the beginning. That's how Abel was saved, and Enoch, and Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses. And he goes through the whole list. Well, now he's out of time. He, he's out of time, and he wants to get us to the last part of this. And so begin reading with me. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to begin reading in verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell. And now these just get an honorable mention. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. He continues. He's just reciting Old Testament stories for us now. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of, of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That Jesus hadn't come yet. He's the promised one. He still hadn't come yet. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they, us, New Testament saints, they, Old Testament saints, 
should not be made perfect. So let's talk about this here as it finishes up. Uh, How many of you, by your own confession, would say, I'm kind of a competitive person? How many of you? That's you. Uh, Oh, I saw the real competitors. They were like trying to get their hand up first. That's, you know, if you're really like, hey, I got my hand up, yeah. So, uh, so people who are competitive, they're always comparing, right? You know, let's see if I'm better than you, faster than you, if I did this and did that, and, and uh, this looks better, or mine's better, or whatever. That's, that's, a, that's the nature of, of competition. I, I have a friend, he's a bit of a competitor, and they, he and his wife were driving across Montana, and, you know, it's big wide open spaces between towns and and he was trying to get where he was going he was trying to get there pretty fast so he was really concentrating on it and driving fast and passing a lot of people his wife was reading on the passenger side and she was just reading and after about an hour she looked over at him and she said are we winning he was driving you know so for some people it's all about winning and losing but you don't have to be competitive to compare do you I won't ask you to raise your hands, but probably a lot in this room, if I said, how many of you have low self-esteem? You might go, oh, I got low self-esteem. How do you know it's low? Unless you've compared it with somebody else's. He's got medium self-esteem. She's got good self-esteem. I got low self-esteem. This is what I was born with, kind of an Eeyore kind of guy, you know. Well, that comes from comparison. Um, Several years ago, I learned that every year when they have the Miss America contest, they, they actually do a bunch of surveys uh, for the contestants of the pageant. And when they, they do several kinds of surveys, and one of the things that they discovered is most of those, we could arguably say 50 of the most beautiful women in America, have low self-esteem. And the reason that they do is that they compare themselves. You know, I'm in their backstage and like saying, have you seen Miss Vermont's eyebrows? They're to die for. I mean, they're really, they're comparing wrists and elbows and eyebrows and knees. And and that's what a pageant is. It's judges comparing you. And so one of the things that happens to us with our relationship with the Lord is that we fall into this uh, jockeying for position, comparing ourselves to other people to see if we're acceptable to the Lord. That's what happened in in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, we're just to be reminded. I was to be reminded every time I brought my lamb and, and it had to give its life for the covering of my sin, I was to be reminded that there was no righteousness in me at all. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. I was to be reminded of that. But what happened is, I brought a, I brought a better lamb than you did. And I brought my lamb first. And I was the first one there on the Sabbath. And I obeyed all the rules. And I checked the boxes. And it turned into self-righteousness. How do you know if you're righteous if you're not comparing yourself to those around you. The purpose of the old covenant was to prove to us that there, we have no part of our salvation. What should happen to those of us who are new covenant believers, New Testament believers, is we acknowledge, I don't have any part of my salvation. There was no righteousness in me at all, not even a smidgen of it. Jesus paid it all. And so it's all his, and we shouldn't turn into those who become self-righteous, but we still do it with our faith. We look at someone and go, oh, he's got a really great faith. Oh, look at her faith. I wish I had faith like that. My faith's not so good. And so we end up comparing our faith. Now, how do you compare faith? 
I have a question for you. How do you compare faith? Since it's an internal thing, it's the assurance of the heart, it's the conviction of the soul, how do you compare faith? Well, we do it by looking at different people's journeys. So the writer of Hebrews 11, as he finishes the chapter, he shows us some different problems with comparing. One of our problems is comparing. So he's going to take us past that. And what he wants to show us is that the test of faith is simply believing God and choosing Jesus. It's it's nothing more than that. At its just bottom shelf, basic elements, it's believing God and choosing Jesus. That's all that it is. So that we would take all this comparison and we would put it aside. So here's what, the, here's what the writer of Hebrews does. He shows us that faith is not found in identical earthly results. Because that's the only way we could compare it. I would have to look at your experience and your results, and I would go like, well, I want, I want his results. I want her results. I, I want what God's done in your life. How do I get that faith? I want the faith that produces that. So what God is saying is, same faith, same biblical faith, but depending on what God has for you, we may get very, very different earthly results. And that's what the end of Hebrews 11 proves. It proves that the same biblical faith can have different results. And the writer gives us a whole list of those different results. I'm going to put them into three different categories for you, okay? So, Category number one, as we read, beginning in verse 32, is kingdom conquering faith. There are some, when we look at their stories, these are victories. In the Old Testament, this is, this is David killing Goliath. This is, the, this is David leading the Hebrews to uh, win over the Philistines. This is, uh, uh, this is a story of, uh, of Samson at the end of his life. He certainly failed in faith through the middle of his life, but at the end of life, this is that. This is, this is Jephthah uh, who's mentioned here. These are, these are the wonderful stories of kingdom conquering faith. These are, these are things that are victories that are so big, so powerful, so wonderful. And you could go on YouTube this afternoon and you could just look up great testimonies of people who said, this is what I went through. This is what God did. This is how I conquered. And the scripture says that in Romans chapter 8. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But probably not very many of us are going to ever be elected president or be king or queen of some country. We, a lot of us are never going to achieve these huge, monumental, parting of the Red Sea kind of moments. And so the writer of Hebrews lists some other people. And these people fall into a second category that I would call personally validating faith. This is, these are people who didn't conquer any kingdoms, but their life validated their faith. Uh, how many of you are like me? I love it when somebody comes back to me and goes, you were right. How many of you, do you like that? I love that moment. It's just great. And, and if it's your kids, oh, wow. Just, you just like want to go like, oh, wait a second, let me get my phone out. Say it, say it in the phone. Just make, wouldn't that be great to make that like their ringtone? You were right, Dad. Hey, it's my daughter. Um. The reason I think we love it is uh, partly we're made that way and partly we never hear it. But what if your faith didn't, it didn't change America? 
it, it, it didn't do anything in the halls of Congress. But what if the people in your life could see your faith and your faith was validated? Now, there's a couple guys that are in here. And oddly enough, they're not named, but they're listed. See, after he goes through the list of names, then he says, and there were others, and he says, who stopped the mouths of lions. Who is that? Say it out loud. Daniel. And who quenched the power of fire. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when we look at their lives, we discover nothing changed in terms of kingdoms. Uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were conquered, actually, by the Babylonians. They were taken as slaves to Babylon. And as far as we can tell from Scripture, none of them ever returned to Jerusalem again. Ever again. In fact, when Daniel asked God some questions about the kingdoms that would come, God revealed to him there'd be the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and the Romans. But he also said to Daniel, this won't happen in your lifetime. No no kingdom conquering stuff for Daniel. He would see it, he would learn of it, but he wouldn't experience it. What did Daniel experience? He experienced this personal validating faith. Remember one of the great stories of Daniel where he ends up in the lion's den? It's a great Sunday school story. Probably most people know it. Uh, Daniel's enemies hated him. Daniel was always on time to work. He always got his stuff in. He was the boss's pet. Everybody loved Daniel except the guys who were competing with Daniel to get the job. And they wanted the promotion, and they knew they could never outdo Daniel. Daniel was just, he was good. It was like, oh, sure, the king loves Daniel. So the only way they knew they could get Daniel was to manipulate the king into passing a law that nobody could worship any other god except the king for 30 days. And they did it. They, they flattered the king. He signed it into the laws of the Medes and Persians, which means it could never, be, could never be changed. And then they went outside Daniel's balcony, and they waited. Sure enough, he came out, just like he always did, clockwork every day. He prayed toward Jerusalem. They nabbed him. They arrested him. They took him to the king. At that moment, the king knew he'd been duped. He knew that he'd been manipulated, but he couldn't get out of it. And so Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. The scripture says that the king didn't sleep all night. He didn't sleep all night. He was so worried about it. He ran back to the lion's den the next morning, and he said, Daniel, he said, did the God that you worship continually, was he able to save you? Now, this is a moment of testing faith. And Daniel hollered back, and he goes, I'm good, king. I'm all good. King didn't sleep all night. Daniel slept on lion posturpedic. Can you imagine just maybe like laying on top of lions and got a big old mane right there and you look at him and he goes, nothing. Daniel comes out. That's not the end of the story. That's the end of the Sunday school story that we tell the kids. That's not the end of the story. The king couldn't change the law, but he's still a dictator. He can still do what he wants to do otherwise. And so he took the people who manipulated him. He took those people and he threw them into the lion's den. And the scripture says that the lions killed them before they touched the floor of the den. That's a, that's a you were right, I was wrong moment, isn't it? That's validating faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King says, hey, if you don't worship me, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And they said, you can do what you want with us, but we're not going to worship you. And he throws him into the fiery furnace, and he looks in there, and he says to the guard, how many did we throw in there? Now, that's a no-brainer, right? And the guard, you know, he's standing at attention. 
three, sir. And the king looks in there. He said, I see four, and one of them looks like the Son of God. And this king had been blustery and arrogant and prideful. And this, this potentate was a dictator who could do whatever he want, says, Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I just wondered if you guys would just come on out. They walked out of fire. Can you imagine that moment? Now, now listen, no kingdoms changed. The, the world didn't change, but God validated the faith of those men in that moment. And that's one of the things that he does. Now, which faith is better? Kingdom conquering faith or personal validating faith? The answer is, it's the same faith. It's just two different journeys. This is our problem. We look at each other and we go like, well, I want what she's got. I want what he's got. We, we want somebody's experience. We want their journey. And we think, oh, if I just had the faith they have, I would get their experience. Same faith different results. There's a third category here. The third category is the sustained and suffering faith. Here, let me read this again because this is not kingdom conquering faith. It's not even personal validating faith. He says in verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's Isaiah, by the way. All these are, these are all Old Testament stories that we know. They were killed with the sword. Remember, remember above this, we read that they uh, were saved from the sword. Verse 34, some escaped the edge of the sword. Now he says, down in verse 37, some were killed with the sword. Did the guy who escaped the sword, did he have better faith, more faith, than the guy who was killed by the sword? That's not what the Lord is saying here. The Lord is saying it's the same faith, just two different journeys. They went about on the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. There's a little personal commentary here by the writer. The world's not even worthy of them. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens, caves of the earth. This is suffering. This is affliction. He uses the words destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Sometimes I think what happens to us is when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, when we go through a time of suffering, when we go through a time of affliction, when things are difficult and we feel like we're praying but we're not really getting the result because there's no kingdom-altering things happening, there's not even any personal validation happening, I'm just barely making it. I pray, but... All I get is enough grace to get through the day. And what we discover from Hebrews chapter 11 is that's the same faith. It's the same faith as those who quenched the fire, slew the giants, who conquered the kingdoms, who won great victories. It's the same faith of those where everybody said, you were right. Nobody says to you, you're right. In fact, some people might be saying to you, if you really had faith, this wouldn't be happening to you. Satan loves to attack us that way. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's the same faith. It's just a different journey. It's just a different result. And as Americans, we are really susceptible to this. We get, we get drawn to the, to the theology that tells us, kingdom conquering faith. We're not drawn to the theology that tells us, sustained through suffering faith. And yet, in your life, 
you will need them all. And so, this is all biblical faith. So here's what I want to do this morning. Ba- based on this and the, and the previous sermons that I've, uh, uh, that we've gone through together, um, I, I want to walk you through these final applications. Because what's important then is that you have biblical faith. I don't know what your walk is this morning. Maybe you're right in the middle of the greatest blessing that you've ever experienced in your life. Maybe you're going through the toughest time you've ever experienced in your life. Maybe for you, you didn't get the promotion at the job, but people are starting to come to you and ask you about your faith, and you're starting to realize, oh, that's what God's doing here at my job. It wasn't about my promotion. It's about what he's doing. Maybe for you, it's just getting up and making it through another day. And so how do you know you've got biblical faith? If the, if the results are all different, if our journeys are all unique and individualized, how do I know that I have the faith that God wants me to have? So here's, here's final applications. Here's what we're going to do. In some ways, everything that I just gave you was introduction. This is the sermon. When faced with the challenges of life, we will either walk in faith or unbelief. This is what we know from Scripture. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to juxtapose what it means to walk in faith and what it means to walk in unbelief. It's just going to be little easy comparisons so that you can see this is faith, this is unbelief. And we're going to walk through them so that you have the ability to see, am I living by faith? Am I walking by faith? If you can't look at the result, whether it's suffering or conquering, to see if you're living in faith, you've got to look at the heart. You've got to look at the soul. And so that's what we're going to do. So first of all, we discover that faith obeys the word of God. The essence of faith, the essence of faith is obeying the word of God. The opposite of that is really, really easy. Unbelief is disobeying the word of God. Now this is faith at the bottom shelf. This is what Jesus was talking about when he says, you've got to have the faith of a child. Because a child really only has one job. A young child, think of a, maybe even a preschooler, a, a, a child only has one responsibility, to obey your mother and your father. That, that's the only responsibility that they have. And the essence of their life, the, the success of their life, the going forward, the prosperity of a child's life, has to do with how obedient they are. If you're not obedient, life is hard. If you are obedient, you start to figure life out. And so it's a picture of the faith walk that we're in. Some of us, we really struggle with this, even though this is bottom shelf faith, because we want to know stuff. We're we're always asking God why. God, why are you doing this in my life? And why are you doing this? And people come to me, I've just asked God why. Well, God is a bit of a parent who's not obligated to, to explain to you why, and if he did explain to you why, like a preschooler, most of us wouldn't understand why. When you have a preschooler, and they're playing in the front yard, and you say, hey, don't go into the street, and all you need for them is to be obedient. You stay right here on the grass in the yard, don't go into the street, and they say, why? Are you at that moment going to explain college physics to them? Well, a 3,000-pound vehicle traveling at 30 mile an hour on our street hits your 30 pound body and a and a a mass in motion tends to stay in motion and when they collide 3,000 pounds at 30 mile an hour and you're but you're are you going to do that with a three-year-old or are you going to say 
because daddy said so. You, you can try to explain physics to them. By the way, when you explain stuff to them really, really good, then do you ever notice sometimes they're just rolling back in their eyes? And, when they, and then when you get done, they go, can I have a cookie? Uh, is it, aren't we a little bit like that with God? You know, then we, we finally find out, oh, the answers are here. Then God's reading and we're saying, so, oh, this is really, this is really, oh, this is really good. I think I need a cookie. We're, we're much more like children than we would like to believe. But the Lord says, faith of a child, it comes down to obedience. It's pretty easy then. I, I would say this. Average person with a average fifth grade, sixth grade education can understand 95% of the Bible. You see, your problem is not in knowing the whys and knowing more. Your problem is in being obedient. In fact, let me tell you something else about Scripture. Because Scripture is spiritual in nature and not informational in nature. If you want to know more about the Bible, do what you already know you should do. And when you do what you know you should do, God will reveal more to you. See, biblical knowledge is based not on your IQ, but on your obedience. And when we're obedient, God reveals himself. Oh, and by the way, it works the other way. The more disobedient you are, the less you understand Scripture. You have people who just go, I don't get it at all. It's because they don't want to. They want to be the boss of their own lives. That's the first step of faith. Here, let's do another comparison. Faith pleases God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith... It's impossible to please God. So many of us would say, well, what's your goal in life? What do you want to accomplish in life? And as believers, many of us would say, well, I want to please God. I want to honor God. I want to bless God. And so faith pleases God. If that's your goal in life, then faith is your only mechanism. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. It also means then that unbelief displeases God. Is it possible that a God who always loves you, he never stops loving you, can be displeased with you? Sure. It, it, when, when we experience God's displeasure, it doesn't mean he loves us any less. In fact, the only reason he would be displeased is because he loves us. Uh, there are a few times in my life when one of my kids have said to me, Are you mad? Are you mad at me, Dad? And a lot of times I've said, no, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. You know what I discovered about my kids? They would rather I be mad at them. That hurt. It hurts more to disappoint someone that we love. And so in this relationship, as you love the God who loves you back, you have a chance to please him. But you can only do it through faith. You don't do it through your goodness. See, once again, we take comparison off the table. You don't say, God... Hey, God, here I am, fifth Sunday in a row. God, God's not pleased by your actions. It's not your, it's not your own self-righteousness that makes God go, wow, I love that guy. He's pleased when you live by faith. And so, if you want to displease God, you live outside of faith. Number three. Faith lives a life inside the will of God. Now, all of these are, by the way, these are all New Testament phrases where you might be like, you might go, oh, I didn't, I, didn't really put, I didn't really put the will of God together with faith. They all go together. 
The, the will of God is the question that I get asked more than any other question as a pastor. Now, it's not people will come up to me and go, what's God's will? They ask a question like this. Oh, I'm thinking about getting married. I don't know if she's the right girl. I don't know if he's the right guy. Or we're thinking about buying a new house. Or we're thinking about buying a new car. I'm thinking about putting in for this promotion at the job. Or I've got another job opportunity. Or it's going to mean we have to move away from town. It's going to mean that some distance between us. And, and, and all of it boils down to what is God's will for me? Well, living in faith means I, I live a life where I care about the will of God. It's not my will it's his will. It, it's no longer my will. I, I came to the cross and I laid down. I didn't just lay down my sins. I laid myself down. This is where the Apostle Paul says, be reminded you were bought with a price. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. Your will doesn't matter anymore. I chose to be the servant of Jesus. And so I laid my will down. So I care about his will. The one who lives by faith is looking to live in the will of God. The one who lives in unbelief lives outside of God's will. And quite honestly, you wake up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, or any other week or any other month of the year, and it doesn't even cross your mind. You don't think about what God wants. In fact, my discovery is that most Christians are afraid of the will of God. They think, oh, if I submit to God, he's going to make me marry an ugly woman and move to outer Mongolia. And you just just won't give in. Here, let's do this. Let's just be real authentic as a group just for a moment. So I'm going to ask you to hold. How many of you, either when you came to faith or in some part of your journey as God was moving you to live by faith, you would say, maybe you would even use this phrase, I came to God, but I kind of came kicking and screaming. How many of you? Raise your hands. Oh, so many of you are liars. Like at 8 o'clock, they all raised their hands. They were like completely authentic. You're like, you're hilarious. This is why it's so hard to preach to you. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked. It's, it's crazy, isn't it, that the God who wants to bless you has to bring you kicking and screaming? But the will of God is something when you live by faith that you desire. I've given myself to the will of God. Here, let's look at another one. Faith is filled with the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, we find this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It means controlled by the Holy Spirit. Unbelief quenches the Spirit. These are opposite Christian experiences. One is walking by faith. And so by faith... The Holy Spirit who indwells me is in charge of me. I've laid my will down. The other one has given their life to the Lord, but not really wanting the control of the Holy Spirit. People will say, you're a fanatic. It'll be hard. It'll be more difficult. And so they quench the Spirit. So the, the picture here is uh, Montana at a campfire. You've been camping. You don't want to cause a forest fire. So what do you got to do? You got to douse the campfire. And so you take water. And Holy Spirit, often, uh, uh, often given us in the metaphor of fire, like Acts chapter 2, cloven tongues of fire came on their head. Jesus said, John the Baptist baptized with water, but I'll baptize with fire. So the Holy Spirit is, is symbolized by fire, but we just take the water and douse it quenching the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indwells you, but he's not your teacher. He's not your guide. You're not controlled by him. 
That's a life of unbelief. And so these are contrasted in Galatians chapter 5. It continues in Galatians chapter 5 to talk about the one who walks in faith walks in the spirit. The other one walks in the flesh. Uh, sometimes we use being filled with the Holy Spirit as just, a, just an episode, just a moment in time. I was at church and I was filled with the Holy Spirit until I got to the roundabout and it was gone. Well, what God desires is that we are filled with the Holy Spirit on a continual basis as we go through life. Walk always, always symbolizes the walk of life, the journey of life. So God doesn't just want you to have a, a few moments in your Christian life where, man, I was in the Spirit here and I was in the Spirit there. And on this occasion, I was in the Spirit. He intends for you to walk by faith, to walk in the Spirit. The opposite of that is to walk in the flesh. Now, the flesh is all around us. The flesh is on us. The temptations of the flesh are everywhere. You can fill in the blank what your temptations are, but they are coming for you. And you can try to fight the flesh. The problem is, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got nothing to fight the flesh with. You'll lose every single time. You're no match for your flesh. But the Spirit is. This is the difference of what a faith journey looks like. Well, just because I'm out of time, and just like the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 says, we just, I'm just out of time now, but the last thing I want you to see is that faith knows that God can be trusted. The essence of faith is that I know I can trust God. When, uh, when Tammy, my wife, passed away, um, as you might imagine, there were moments when uh, my children and I, uh, full of grief, were sitting together, and through our tears, sometimes the kids would ask me why. Why did God do this? Why did God do that? Uh, I didn't have any answers for that, except to say to them, this is what I know. I know that God is good and that God is perfect. He never makes mistakes. That's what I know. I know that we can trust in him. And there, there comes this point in your faith walk, in your faith journey, where you've got to decide, just like where we started with obedience, you've got to decide that God loves you and that you can trust him. And that what he has for you, whether it's kingdom conquering faith, personal validating faith, or sustained through suffering faith, that you can trust him that he is good. The opposite of that is... I'm going to trust myself. A life of unbelief is you in the moment where you go, am I going to trust God or am I going to trust me? You see, that's, those are really your only two choices. Your only two choices are trusting God or trusting you. Do you know what I've discovered about me? I don't want to trust me. Me doesn't help me. Me messes me up. Me takes me in the wrong directions. It's bad grammar and good theology. I've got to trust God. God knows more about me than I know about me. I've forgotten some stuff about me. God's never forgotten anything about me. God loves me with an eternal love demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ, that he would send Jesus to die for me. When I didn't have anything to bring, I didn't have any righteousness. On the, as if we're all comparing, I'm last. I got nothing. You come to the cross of Christ and you lay yourself down. 
and you give him by faith. You give him your life. And then God does whatever he does after that. He takes you on your journey, takes me on my journey, someone else on their journey. These are all individual journeys. So we can compare the journey, but what a mistake that would make when what we need is the faith that gives us victory, the faith that validates, the faith that sustains. That's what you need today. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning and you've never made that first step of faith? You've never given your life to Jesus Christ? That's the beginning place. The beginning of faith is trusting in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, cleanse you of your unrighteousness, come inside of you. He gives you heaven. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you his Holy Spirit. If you'll just, if you'll just trust in him. Most of us in this room have already done that. But the question is, are you living a life of faith? Or does it actually look a little bit more like the world? It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to do. You could, in fact, you could take your little sermon note and get a, get a magnet and put it, on the, put it on the fridge this week so you can look at it and ask yourself, do I obey God's word or do I disobey it? Do I, do I trust God or am I trusting myself? Am I filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit? Or am I walking towards the flesh? Pretty easy. It's not hard to do. So this morning, I'm asking you, will you live by faith? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I wouldn't embarrass anyone, but how many of you know the exact place in your life where you and your will and maybe your fears and your worries are in conflict with God and his will and you've got to decide if you're going to trust him or trust yourself. Are you going to live by faith or not? How many of you already know what that is? You just raise your hand. I already know that area of my life all over the room. How many of you have someone in your life that you love, you care about, they're dear to you and they've not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you say, pray for my friend. All over the room. All over the room. See, faith is what it's all about, isn't it? It's the whole thing. That's why we have it all in Hebrews 11, given to us in one place to remind us we can't come to God outside of faith. We can't please God outside of faith. We can't really live outside of faith. His journey for you, I don't know where that will take you. But I know that faith will get you there. Father, you've seen every heart you know about every person. You know the burdens that we carry. You know the troubles of our lives. You know our friends and loved ones who haven't come to faith in Christ Jesus yet. You know that place where you've been asking us to trust you and we haven't. Today I pray that all over this room you get victory. I pray this is a conquering moment. I pray, this, I pray that this is a moment where we lay our will down and we put ourselves right smack dab in the middle of your Father, let this be a moment of obedience and of faith. And we pray that we are changed because of the power of your word and your Holy Spirit demonstrated in your son, Jesus. You will take us forth as a faith people from this moment forward. And we pray this in the most holy and precious name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, here for benediction is the end of Hebrews chapter 11. When he finishes talking about all of these Old Testament saints, he says, And all of these, even though they were commended because of their faith, they didn't receive what was promised. Messiah hadn't come yet. 
because God had provided something better for us that apart from us they the Old Testament saying should not be made perfect now there's two parts to this one is that God had decided to include us and the second part is he's going to make us perfect so chapters 12 and 13 I'm going to preach under the series title finishing the race the idea is this that I'm walking in my life of sanctification where I, where I will never be perfect. But I'm walking, becoming more like Christ, becoming closer to heaven, so that when I get there and that day comes when I step off of this earth and into heaven, I step out of sanctification and into glorification, it should just be for the believer the next natural step. Chapters 12 and 13, get a friend, bring them with you, finishing the race. See you then. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.